0: This week, the US prepares to walk away from a nuclear pact with Russia. How worried should we be? Plus the growing pressure to halt the probes of Northern Ireland veterans.
1: And a Brexit deal's agreed for Gibraltar? But what if there's no deal? We might seek to put in place some sort of a safety net, a what you might call a no deal deal.
0: Hello, I'm James Hurst in for Kate Gerbo. It is, according to some in Europe, the treaty that helped to end the Cold War. But the 1987 agreement to ban intermediate-range missiles appears to be on its last legs. This week, Donald Trump's national security, security adviser met Vladimir Putin to insist the US will pull out of the treaty. Meanwhile, the US president threatened to boost America's nuclear stockpiles until Russia, as well as China, in his words, come to their senses. So, is this the beginning of a new arms race? Let's speak to Dan Plesh, Director of London University's Diplomatic Studies Centre. Dan, the, the whole concept of this treaty was to eliminate the missiles that could strike within minutes of launch. If, if, if the treaty is being abandoned, does that threat return?
2: Well, the, that threat is uh, still there with uh, our Trident and other uh, Russian weapons. Um, So the threat is very real and I think we have these sort of diplomatic events and people need to understand that the nuclear standoff on hair trigger alert has never gone away and that thousands of missiles are uh, at a a few minutes notice to fire. So the underlying instability remains and I think for those who support uh, these weapons and not having treaties really have to answer the question how long are we expected to live with nuclear weapons are we going to have nuclear weapons forever and there not be a war you know if william the conqueror had, had nuclear weapons and harold had d- had nuclear weapons are we expected to believe the battle of hastings would never have happened you know this is nonsense you I mean, have to understand that we have to control weapons if we are to survive as a species
0: things move move in cycles i i guess in history and we we you know went through a cycle where nuclear stockpiles and arms were built up they the circle came round, they've reduced again. Are we going to go into a new arms race if if this treaty is ended?
2: I think we're already in one. All the uh, nuclear weapon states are building new types of nuclear weapons as we speak, the Russians, the Americans, the British version of Trident, uh, and so forth. It is, I think, though, uh, a mistake to think about uh, huge uh, Russian and Chinese build-ups. They are hugely inferior to... American conventional strike power and indeed I wrote an article recently uh, asking whether the US could win World War 3 without even using nuclear weapons such as the power and precision and rapidity of the American conventional arsenal and that's really what worries me Beijing and Moscow
0: Let's bring in here our defence analyst Christopher Lee with us as always Christopher, do you think the loss of this treaty would be as potentially disastrous as, as some in Europe have suggested?
3: Uh, I don't... No, I don't think it's going to be disastrous. Um, I'm not sure it's going to make much difference. I mean, I'm one of those people who thinks, perhaps, um, that I've see never seen any point in nuclear weapon treaties anyway, um, because uh, relations between, say, two superpowers, um, that doesn't mean you're going to have a, a treaty. The relations actually just reflect are reflected by the fact that you get a treaty. Um... Dan has been around this banana for a long, long time, Um, and I think he knows that when you get a a, a treaty, you're banning things that you really don't want to have. You're banning things that you can't perhaps see the use of anymore. You're banning things that you don't want, and you're banning things that you don't want the other side to have. But you've still got, let's say, 20000 Uh, nuclear warheads or nuclear weapon systems between the two superpowers, what is different now that we should be concentrating far more on things like anti-personnel mines, getting that tidied up, which you won't; um, biological weapons, which we really ought to be doing far more; systems of ratification. I mean, the Americans say we're going to ban this, but they, you know, you look around and they haven't actually ratified a lot of the agreements oh. they've been to. And the other thing is 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 to get to verification processes. These are far more than who's got what, because the answer to to, to Dan's question: Are we going to just just have nuclear weapons and wait for a nuclear war. The answer is yes. Um, D- Dan, the, President Obama considered pulling out of this because
0: Russia, he said, were in breach of it. Uh, Donald Trump points out it doesn't really work on a global basis because only the US and, uh, and, and Russia are signed up, not China. It's Europe, though, that's worried. So if this goes, what works for them in its place?
2: Well, you'll see perhaps more pressure from the right wing in Europe to build more nuclear weapons. But it is also an unfortunate fact for the Western case. And it is, I think, a sad comment on the Western media that the United States has deployed and is continuing to deploy um, INF banned launch systems, uh, the Mark 41 launcher, which is designed to fire Tomahawk cruise missiles, They're putting them into Eastern Europe and they say that they're only going to use them for anti-ballistic missiles from the Middle East. Well that cuts no ice with the Russians any more than if it was the other way around. Um, These are banned items under the treaty, uh, and the Russians have a strong case, so both sides, these things are fixable, technically, but both sides uh, are at fault here, Uh, and uh, Chris's point, well, we're just going to have nuclear weapons until we have a nuclear war in you know, maybe sanguine, um, you know, I have a young family and, uh, I have come from a, a family that traces its roots back 500 years. And I'd quite like to see another 500 years. And I don't, and I live in a house that's 500 years old. I don't see another 500 years of future with nuclear weapons. So then it becomes, how do you manage, uh, the situation? Fortunately, We have a visionary UN Secretary-General in shape of Guterres who has for the first time ever produced a global strategy for the control of all forms of weaponry, as he says, from hand grenades to hydrogen bombs. And this, I think, should commend itself to Chris, who is uh, interested in a whole range of other issues that he just mentioned.
3: I take this another side of this, though, Dan. Um, I actually believe that you're not going to get rid of... uh, Let's say 10,000 on either side of nuclear warheads or weapons or whatever form. I just don't believe it. Just as in October 86, uh, Gorbachev should not have believed it when Reagan said, oh, well, we can get rid of all nuclear weapons. Um, we've moved into a different area, and you mentioned it, and that is the management of our security. We've got to start thinking how our security might be managed, um, and we've got to look much further around the world where for the first time we can imagine a nuclear confrontation taking place which doesn't actually involve us and that's the management of nuclear systems that is a harder job than just actually going to a conference in Geneva and hoping you get hold of something which won't stop you going to war when the relations between the two superpowers or what were the superpowers sink. Final thoughts,
0: uh, Dan Plesch. Who might gain well, more from, from from this? U.S., Russia, or do they end up about evens if the treaty goes?
2: Well, I think it's uh, it's lose lose for the world, and I think that uh, you see a solution in the young people who led the uh, charge for a new norm uh, for the nuclear ban treaty. And as I say, the the bottom line really is how do we see the future of civilization w- uh, with these weapons uncontrolled and other weapons, or should we control them? And frankly, in the age of Google Earth. Uh, verifying, controlling these technologies is vastly simpler than it was in the days of the Cold War. Okay. And if we, we can control the world's climate, we certainly can control the world's weapons.
0: Dan, thank you very much indeed. Dan Plesch, Director of London University's Diplomatic Study Centre. Now, of course, this all comes just as NATO happens to be beginning its largest military exercise since the Cold War. Christopher, tell us more about Trident Juncture and, and why it matters. OK,
3: imagine that the Russians have invaded uh, Norway. Now, there's a 200 kilometer stretch of land right at the north of uh, Norway uh, which is the border between Russia and Norway and the Russians reckon that in something like 72 hours they could cross it with support having done uh, sort of uh, airborne seaborne and landborne uh blasting beforehand that can be done so what happens there are 29 members of NATO in theory it says in the NATO handbook if this should happen then we should all go to the help of whichever the norway it was on the day. What this exercise is about, and it goes on in two stretches, roughly 10 days at a time, is to see what we would do. Uh, Would we go? Who would go? How would they go? For example, you've got 29 countries. You I mean, the chances of getting more than about sort of eight who could do actually anything that was reasonable. It's got the military power to mm-hmm. do so. has got the political incentive to do so. is pretty slim. So that's the reasonable side of it. What can you do uh, to go and give Norway back to the Norwegians? What would be the cost? And then what you, would you do afterwards? That's a very tricky... It's, I think it's the most important exercise we've had since 1991. Christopher, thank you. <laughs>
0: still ahead the continuing political row over the treatment of veterans of the conflict in northern ireland and we're in australia with competitors at the invictus games
4: it's helped me immensely it has really changed my life the games has just given me that pickup just to help me push me along that recovery journey the fbs Zip rep
0: it has been another busy week for the government's increasingly frantic preparations for Brexit, whatever form it may actually take. Britain's biggest warship, HMS Queen Elizabeth, has been in New York hosting discussions on cyber security, but also promoting Britain as a trading partner ahead of our departure from the EU. The military is being relied on to boost the UK's post Brexit profile, but the First Sea Lord Admiral Sir Philip Jones told us there is nothing new about that.
5: The Royal Navy was at the heart of the United Kingdom establishing its global trading empire in the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, and it was the Navy that enabled that to be sustained, enabled the trade to flow, which enabled the empire to build its its trading missions. And we're seeing an element of that return now. The United Kingdom is going to have to look further abroad to establish global trading relationships. We sense there are partners out there who want to trade more with us.
0: Well, the Prime Minister says she is... of the way to the Brexit divorce deal, and this week she told MPs they've already reached agreement on a number of tricky issues.
1: We have developed a protocol relating to the UK sovereign base areas in Cyprus, following discussions with Spain, and in close cooperation with the government of Gibraltar. We have also developed a protocol and a set of underlying memoranda relating to Gibraltar, heralding a new era in our relations. So what does that
0: mean in practice? Well, that's a question I put to Gibraltar's Chief Minister, Fabian Picardo, when I met him in
1: London earlier this week. It reflects Gibraltar's different status in the EU today, whilst members, so that as we leave, we leave from that differentiated status in a way that ensures a soft landing for all of those people who've been relying on the application of the treaties until now.
0: Will it effectively mean no
1: change for for Gibraltar when, when... Britain leaves the EU? So the whole design of the withdrawal agreement is to ensure that all of those people who have been practising rights under the treaties will have an extra period for soft landing, this implementational transitional period that we talk about, and then thereafter all of those people will be able to continue to exercise what you might call community rights indefinitely for the rest of their lives, if they wish, because they continue to carry those personal to holder rights, as you might regard them in the context of a union negotiation, um, for the rest of the time that they want to exercise those rights, either at work or in terms of residence. That doesn't mean that the treaties continue to apply. It means that those individuals have acquired rights and what we're recognising in the withdrawal agreement generally, and in particular in the protocol on Gibraltar for those who have been exercising rights in respect of Gibraltar that those rights will continue indefinitely into the future, even after the end of the period of transitional implementation.
0: So, in short, people are still going to be able to to flow and work between... Gibraltar and La
1: Linea, and that, that region. And, and, of course, the most important thing for us is that people will be able to continue to exercise their free movement rights, whether in relation to work, um, and that is both uh, in the relation to residents in Spain and work in Gibraltar, or residents in Gibraltar and work in Spain. We have a handful of people who live in Gibraltar but work in Spain, and that will continue to happen, but also citizens generally who are exercising their right to travel for recreational purposes or for family purposes will be able to continue to do so.
0: All this is dependent on there actually being a complete exit deal. What happens
1: if the UK and therefore Gibraltar leave with no deal? So the whole framework of the protocol is that it hangs off that main withdrawal agreement also between the United Kingdom and the European Union. In the absence of that framework, I think we've agreed enough of the substance of the practical arrangements between us, the United Kingdom, the European Union and Spain, that we might seek to put in place some sort of safety net, a what you might call a no-deal deal, to protect those citizens who need to continue to exercise rights after the 29th of March. Is there a danger that people, for example, will have to get a, a seven-euro piece of paperwork to go back across the border to Spain? Well, not from the point of view of the government of Gibraltar. We're not going to require people to have an additional administrative burden. But the EU might. But the EU might. And indeed, those are possibilities that now open up if there is a no-deal situation.
0: Christopher, optimistic-sounding talk there from Fabian Picardo. I, I do find myself wondering how much this is actually about Brexit and how much actually this is a spark to try and tie up long running loose threads over Gibraltar and Spain
3: Listen, when, when there was the, uh, the, the um, vote for the Gibraltarians 98% of them said we want to stay European mm. um, in fact some of them said couldn't even talked about joining Spain uh, so that they could remain European 30% of Gibraltarians or something like that go to work in Spain and um, and a lot of them build their houses in Spain because there's nowhere else to build them in, in Gibraltar, etc. This is not tying anything up. This is a way of putting a formality or putting a response into not only what or, uh, what ordinarily exists, but which they hope they can continue to exist. Now, I would only say one thing. Uh, Gibraltar, Spain, Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland. It's a, and that, you know, Theresa May says,
0: the one... Continue sticking point, she's 95% there, but it is still about the Northern Ireland uh, uh, Republic of Ireland border. Next to Australia, where the fourth Invictus Games continue in Sydney. Prince Harry told the hundreds of competitors they were the unconquered generation during the opening ceremony at the city's famous Opera House. And the games are as much about overcoming the psychological scars of injury as physical wounds. From Australia, Ali Gibson.
4: The Team UK medal sweep began on the first full day of the 2018 Games. 11 medals alone in cycling. Stepping onto the podium, athletes like Andrew White and Debbie O'Connell open and honest about how much of a difference Invictus has made to their lives.
5: It's not just about me,
3: um, so when I was discharged I actually fell into quite a severe depression and my family suffered just as much as I did and it's just as much about them as it is about me. And my family are here today
4: um, and it's, it's really nice to be with them. It's helped me immensely, um, You know, it has really changed my life. From obtaining my injury, which is nearly three years now, I was only discharged from the military a year ago. It's a very difficult period of my life um, and the Games has just given me that pick-up just to help me, push me along with that recovery journey and just to give me a sense of well-being about myself again, actually I'm not this injured person, I am a person and I can still achieve these things. It's a story seen across the Invictus Games, with veterans and serving personnel from 18 nations overcoming huge adversity to take part. They face eight days of competition in 11 medal sports their families just as excited as they are. We found that we don't just end up supporting our husbands or our sons or brothers or dads, we end up supporting everyone because we've all got to know each other. Yeah, so watching yeah. them all do their absolute best and have the best time. And all the other nations too. And my dad winning dog. Oh. At the opening ceremony, held in front of Sydney Opera House, Prince Harry praised the changes in perception for military personnel that the competition has helped bring about.
0: Invictus has become about the example of service and dedication our competitors have provided to the world. Our Invictus family has turned these games into a symbol of strength, honour and optimism for a new generation. A new generation, the Invictus generation, is defining what it means to serve.
4: And watching very closely what happens at this Invictus Games are representatives from the British government. Minister for Defence People and Veterans, Tobias Elwood.
0: I was a regular officer and we were discouraged from talking about
1: mental health issues. You were just told to grab a man suit and deal with it. And that is the wrong attitude. So what we're seeing here is an acceptance that yes, there could be something that we could do to help. And that's
0: what Invictus is all about.
4: It's not just the UK team that are feeling the Invictus buzz. The serving and former soldiers on the Afghanistan team are mainly amputees, wounded by Taliban bombs. But athletes like Saiful Rachman Rachmani have a positive outlook.
3: I never actually lost myself and I never lost hope. I still feel that actually I'm a complete person and I continue with my life.
4: The next Invictus Games after Sydney won't be for another two years. The Hague have announced they'll be the hosts in 2020. For now, though, there are still two days of competition left as the athletes face each other in archery, wheelchair basketball and athletics.
0: Ali Gibson reporting from the Invictus Games in Australia. Now. Back to Westminster, as if Theresa May doesn't have enough on her plate with Brexit. This week, she has also come under renewed pressure over investigations into past actions in Northern Ireland and other military conflicts. More than a hundred MPs and dozens of peers. ...signed a letter demanding she drop plans for a new historical investigations unit. It is meant to look at killings where so far there have been no prosecutions. Critics of the plan, like the former Defence Secretary Sir Michael Fallon... ...say in fact it's resulted in the persecution of veterans.
3: These things have already been investigated... ...and we think it's wrong to keep reopening these cases... ...and therefore cause all this additional worry and concern for their families. Well, it's, it's right that uh, people in Northern Ireland should want explanations for terrorist killings, of course. But these are cases that have already been investigated. There's no new evidence available. They've been investigated once. The soldiers concerned have been told that the investigation is over. They've nothing to fear. And now suddenly they get a knock on the door. They can be arrested, flown to Belfast and charged. That's quite wrong not least when terrorists themselves are being given letters of comfort saying they won't be prosecuted.
0: Well, that letter to Theresa May was coordinated by former Defence Minister Mark Francois, who joins us now. Uh, thank you for joining us on Zip Rep. 24 hours after handing your letter in to the Prime Minister, she said at uh, Prime Minister's questions there was a disproportionate proportionate focus on members of the armed forces. So have, have you, in fact, already won your battle? Well, we
5: certainly hope that we've made progress um, you know, we had 104 MPs with us, um, plus over 50 members of the House of Lords, including Lord Dannet, a former head of the British Army, four previous chiefs of the defence staff, uh, Lord King, Tom King, a former defence secretary. You know, so we've had both MPs in the Commons, and this is led by a, uh, about a dozen ex military MPs who feel this passionately. And then, if you like, we've got the sort of military great and the good. Uh, from uh, from the House of Lords as well. So I think that you know that collection. Uh, it's difficult for uh, the prime minister and other ministers to uh, to ignore. So, you know, we hope we are we have been taken seriously, and yeah, we were encouraged to some degree by what the prime minister said in the Commons. But there is clearly more work to do.
0: And it is a a, a, a complex issue. I just want to have a, a quick listen to Mark Thompson. He runs a group called Relatives for Justice. His brother was shot dead by the army almost 30 years ago.
5: In the course of the conflict, 20,000 Republicans and several thousand Loyalists went to jail. The British Army were responsible for just under 400 killings. Four soldiers went to jail in separate incidents. All four were sentenced to life imprisonment. All four were released significantly early into their sentences.
0: Now, it is a complex issue. that You hear numbers like that. It's difficult to, to, to know from having not experienced it where the dividing lines lie between what needs to be investigated and what doesn't isn't
5: it? Well let's work from first principles Uh, all of these uh, shootings were investigated at the time so they were looked into and military personnel had to operate in accordance with the law they were in almost all cases under the jurisdiction of the yellow card which gave very clear instructions on when you were and were not allowed to open fire uh, but on the you know on the other side of the ledger as you quite rightly said in your package we have you know a number of uh, ira terrorists Uh, who were released under the Good Friday Agreement, who've been given get-out-of-jail-free cards by Tony Blair, in effect, and not one of those people has ever been successfully prosecuted subsequently for a terrorist offence. The Hyde Park bomber, uh, who killed so many people, uh, uh, allegedly, uh, was being uh, tried in court and th- the trial was stopped because he produced one of these letters of comfort and the judge at that point abandoned the trial. Isn't
0: isn't the point of the system that the government has, has put forward and consulted on that all killings I- effectively get equal treatment in terms of re-examination? And the point Michael Fallon made to me, he said, look, you know... Uh, unless there's new evidence these things shouldn't be reopened but unless you look at them properly you can't know whether there is new evidence to be examined but they were
5: looked at every uh, uh, fatality caused by the security forces was investigated at the time they all were to make sure that they'd only open fire in accordance with the law and look, you know, you've, the army has got records it's part of the state the IRA don't you can't go down to the IRA records office in Londonderry and pull their records because they don't exist. So, I mean, let's look at this in the real world, not just in terms of abstract theory. You know, you've now got a guy called Corporal Major Dennis Hutchings, who's aged 77, who was commended for his service. He's now dying of terminal cancer. But he's been charged with murder for an incident that occurred in the early 1970s for which there are now no longer any living witnesses. And he will probably die, unfortunately, before that, tr- that case is ever tried. For someone who served their country, they deserve better than this. And so our mission as members of Parliament and ex-military men is perfectly clear. We are going to defend the defenders because somebody has to. Stay, stay with us. I just
0: want to bring in our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Christopher, this is a, a process that Northern Ireland is going through psychologically, to an extent. How important is it for, 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 for the future of Northern Ireland that, that
3: this is done the right way? I, I think it's got to be done the right way, but then somebody has to decide and somebody has to agree what is the right way. Uh, it is extraordinarily sensitive because every aspect of uh, social, political, and personal uh, discussions about almost any subject in Northern Ireland becomes sensitive enough for people to step back and say i don 't want to get into that and what we have here um, and when you it, it, it is perhaps something that will never be settled in people 's minds. Northern Ireland, the province of Northern Ireland, part of the United Kingdom doesn't have ordinary ways of doing things as the rest of the United Kingdom has. And I think this there will, there will be legends about this uh, there will be stories, Tories told about it and nobody in the end will be fully satisfied. But that is, the, that is one of the uh, ways of the province.
0: Mark Francois, how, how difficult to to resolving this is it that, that Northern Ireland doesn't have devolved administration running at the moment?
5: Well, yeah, that is part, part of the problem and uh, I fear that the the Northern Ireland office are dragging their feet on this because they want to appease Sinn Féin because they're desperate to get them back into the Northern Ireland Assembly. And, you know, I think that's pretty
0: appalling. But but, but isn't it actually right that it it should be the the people and specifically the elected representatives of of Northern Ireland who who have the final say on how this goes
5: forward? Well, I, I certainly think they should have a say in it. Um, But, you know, these were uh, UK troops uh, ordered to go there by the UK government and operating under the orders of the United Kingdom Ministry of Defence. So I think that needs to be taken into, into account too. I mean, look, you know, this has been going on for several years And basically, a bunch of members of Parliament who served in the armed forces have got together and said, up with this, we may not put. Mark
0: Francois, and you have been heard, I'm afraid we're out of time. I've no doubt we will discuss it again. But thanks for joining us once again on SITREP today. Thank you also to Christopher and all this week's guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch on Twitter, at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, you can sign up for the podcast. Just search for SITREP wherever you download your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'll speak to you again next week. Bye-bye.
1: The best
5: of British news. Sport and entertainment. For the British forces overseas. This
2: is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.